I believe that over the next three or four years, regulators are going to be catching up and creating structures where us developers will be able to connect the real technology with the clients who need them. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host for the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have Ben Levy. He's the executive director of Round Trip Energy. Ben's a project developer, engineer, and construction manager with experience cradle to grave development of large and utility scale renewable energy projects across the US and Caribbean. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being on it. Thank you so much for having me, Benoit. Really happy to be here. We have to thank actually Sean from Constellation who actually made the introduction earlier this year. And then it was interesting because I was actually driving from New Jersey to a meetings I had in a conference that I was actually speaking at in Richmond and meeting with landowners. And on the way, Ben and I met for lunch on highly recommended Ben. And we had a great lunch. It was like over two and a half hours. Yeah, Um, it's funny. After Sean introduced us, I suppose it was by phone, I started listening to the podcast, which I hadn't heard too much of before. And it was like, I guess you were coming up from Virginia. You were at some kind of conference. And Something that was mentioned on the podcast is that you were going to be driving up to D.C. and you were going to be having some meetings. And so it was like I was in the twilight zone. I was (laughs) to hear about this meeting that I was going to be in. Maybe even before it happened, it may have been. So that was cool. I was almost like famous without being named. Yeah, definitely. And we had a great meeting. And it's amazing what you've done in the industry. Obviously, you have now your own company round trip energy which is almost two years old but you have like a really varied experience within energy and the solar industry work at sonadex constellation amoresco and capital sun group it would be great ben if you could talk about what you guys do at round trip energy and what made you start your own company yeah thanks thanks for this platform i really uh, appreciate it Round Trip energy develops and finances solar and energy storage projects like you said, across the U.S. and the Caribbean. So we are essentially solar project engineers by blood. We also work as a technical consultant and advisor for utility-scale project developers and building owners in the space. Since the end of last year, we brought on new investment capital. We have completely opened up our options to develop our own projects all the way through to operation, but it also enables us to step into projects developed by other companies, finance them, and then take them into operation as well. You mentioned the diverse set of experiences, and that's part of how Round Trip and, and our services came to be. We're set up to be a little bit different from other developers and consultants. Our whole focus when we started to do business planning was to find niches in this very condensed market that are underserved and then be great at providing services to those. So we can be a little bit agile, but we identified three main places that we're focusing this year. First place is being real, true developers in commercial solar plus storage. So there's a lot of companies that are doing off-grid residential. There's a lot of suppliers providing 
PCS and batteries together, but there's not a lot of companies that are integrating and providing the full sort of permitting and analysis and implementation scope. Second focus I want to say is that we are now financing and operating systems that are historically unfinanceable or harder to finance. So either because they have a customer has less than grade A credit, their location, or them being a smaller system. We've partnered up with banks and investors that can streamline PPA deals and solar leases for these unusual customers and we're competitive with that pricing. And then the third focus is to be very competent and thorough technical project developers for hire as a consultant. And we've worked with the most conservative utilities and funds and we act like in-house development or staff augmentation on an engineering and project developer standpoint for our clients. Sure, and no, that's amazing. You guys have a unique experience in the market. You specifically, Ben, have a lot of great experiences at a lot of great companies doing a diversity of different things, which you need to be able to develop projects. And the other thing too, obviously you provide consulting services as well. That's a huge value. Can you talk about, I know you've done stuff in the US and Caribbean and you are now developing projects in the mid-Atlantic. You guys are based in DC. It would be interesting to get your take. I don't know, we didn't talk about this, of the DC market. Obviously everyone looks at the DC market as a very attractive market because it has very high SRECs, but the challenge is to find like available land and roof space. I know companies as well has looked into projects in Maryland where potentially like there's distribution within DC to Maryland and potentially it could qualify for SRECs. It'd be interesting to get your perspective on the DC market. Definitely. Yeah, we are developing a few projects in DC right now. DC is a very unique market. I'm not sure if everyone who are the, the listeners know that there is a very high-valued SREC that has ACPs, anti-compliance penalties, out another 15 or 20 years, still relatively high. And so I know on the podcast, some of the ones I've listened to, you've mentioned the SREC markets in the Atlantic, so New Jersey and Massachusetts, that started extremely high and essentially tanked, even when Massachusetts put the floors in there and, and other mechanisms. Now, what's different about DC, possibly, a lot of developers have the same kind of fears with another SREC market. What's different about DC is that we have a true confinement of the supply of SRECs. That's because DC is essentially a nine mile by nine mile grid that's totally packed with residential houses and commercial office buildings, there's very limited space to add solar. So with the RPS so high, there are a significant number of SREC valuation companies, brokers, that believe that the demand for SRECs will always outweigh the supply and therefore the price will remain relatively close up to the ACP. With that being said, these projects are able to be done at relatively high, potentially developer fees. Sometimes building owners are getting sort of, I don't want to call them kickbacks, but payments or roof rent for some owners. What's happening is 
it's oddly not that packed of a market, and that's because a lot of people believe that the risk is still too high and it's too much of a merchant risk compared to a traditional solar PPA in other states where the majority of your revenue stream is a fully contracted fixed price PPA. And so it's a market that's evolving and some people believe that the ACPs may be dropped in the future years by a change of law, but more than likely the RPS won't get cut and solar won't get oversubscribed as far as SREC generation compared to where that RPS has it at. Yeah, definitely. That's a great explanation of it. I mean, basically, we actually did a 101 on SREX. SREX is a solar renewable energy credit. They're right. one megawatt hour of energy, solar energy. Basically, that's a state, that's an incentive that the state has created. And if you don't have renewables, that's a way of you meeting the compliance obligations in that state for renewables by purchasing these SREX that incentivizes development of solar. Alluding to is that there's a very high sort of demand for these SREX in DC. And basically the alternate compliance penalty, it trades some sort of discount to it. And the supply is limited because there's just a limited amount of space to develop solar. So that's a great explanation. It's funny because this is kind of like solar was in 2007 and 2009, where people were valuing projects wildly differently. There'd be PPA offers on an RFP that were 10 cents, 14 cents, and 4 cents. But now the more mature a market is from the financing side and the build side and the lease side, the tighter the delta is from the highest to lowest bidder. And in DC, we still don't really have that because valuations are all over the place on financing terms, PPA terms, SREC valuation, risk. So really, really interesting place to be in now. Yeah, definitely. And people, the investors that win projects are the ones that are comfortable with taking a certain portion of merchant SREC risk. And obviously, they're more aggressive on their curve, trading at some sort of small discount to ACP to win those projects in DC, from what I've seen. We're all following this at home, and your podcast is excellent at sort of parsing out some of the things that are happening in the solar financing space, in the larger scale solar space. And we are seeing more and more that financiers and investors are willing to take a little bit more merchant risk than they used to be. And that is a product of who are the tax equity, tax equity and sponsor equity investors and what's their sort of comfort and risk level. And I think we're going to be seeing that more and more moving towards the point where solar prices are actually meeting up with wholesale prices. Definitely, I agree with you. Thanks, Ben. I mean, I think we're seeing investors more comfortable with taking merchant risk. And it's huge when you talk about the type of investors within the capital stack and how comfortable they are. And obviously, seems like energy companies are more comfortable with merchant risk than maybe some of the other investors out there. I think it would be great too, like basically for the audience to know like the SREX in 2019, the bid for DC SREX are between the bid and ask is between $400 to $450 per megawatt hour. So basically you're talking about between 40 cents per kilowatt hour to 45 cents per kilowatt hour, and maybe like a commercial industrial off-taker might pay 12 to 14 cents 
off per kilowatt hour. So obviously that's almost three to four times. Yeah. People are looking for revenue streams and they're looking for revenue on these projects. And I listened to a podcast and you're saying Massachusetts, they're people are putting storage on their solar plants across the board in Massachusetts because they're at 14 cents. This revenue stream gets thrown into the project's model and the money needs to go out somewhere. Where, where is it going to go and how is it going to be absorbed? So luckily we have that to play with. There are a lot of companies that do struggle with matching up that risk because it looks so great now, but they saw what a lot of their predecessors did in Jersey and and mass before so definitely that's really helpful and i think this is very valuable for your audience i I really appreciate you going into detail can you talk about what made you start your company round trip energy has been around now i guess it's been a year and eight months this show the solar maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship it would be great to get your perspective sure you know i actually come from a family of entrepreneurs i guess i didn't even realize that but somehow they must have opened up a neural pathway for me that entrepreneurship was safe and great. And I think because of my slight conservativeness, being you know, having the engineer side of my, I don't know if that's left brain or right brain, it did take me a little bit longer, you know, until I started Round Trip Energy. I got exposure to startups a little bit earlier in my career. One case was actually, I, I was working, I was appointed to Constellations Venture Group that was acting like a VC looking at solar and battery startups. And so watching them get their startups off the ground with the technology created a first exposure to me. And also a little known fact is I actually started a company at the end of my time in college, writing and publishing a guidebook to Chicago. Amazing because I'm really not that good of a writer, but we did pretty good and it was a great experience getting my feet wet. I got the idea to start the company really only made sense. I have been working in solar and the energy space for 14 years, and it's all I know. So it felt like a low risk, a low leap to jump in to it. I was close to starting a business after leaving Constellation in this type of way, a development way. And I felt that I needed a little bit more experience on the construction side and utility scale side. I needed more ideas and I needed more capital. So I actually joined Synetics and I moved down to Puerto Rico where I built several utility scale power plants. But I believe the idea for this very specific business came from a time where I was talking with my old boss at Constellation, Ron Melcher. We were looking at these developers that were coming in selling us projects. They were coming in asking for dev fees more than a dollar a watt. And we were saying to each other, look, okay, with Jersey SREX at $250 a megawatt hour, we could go out, buy a lease option for $3,000 and come back and sell the same project at a discount for 90 cents a watt. And so it seemed like there was money to be made. It was lucrative and it didn't seem too hard. And after gaining this experience, I felt, especially with the hurricanes coming through in Puerto Rico, it felt like the stars were aligning for me to actually jump in and start Round Trip Energy up. Yeah, I guess that's a bit of the background. Yeah, that's an amazing story. I also come from parents who are entrepreneurs, and I took a while before I started my own business. We're on a similar trajectory. I think you're a little bit ahead of me. 
<laughs> Trust I me, don't have the podcast you. yet, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow in your footsteps, the Solar Mavericks footsteps. Yeah, actually, it's funny because when we met for lunch, Ben was talking about why don't we have another podcast more focused on the technical aspects of solar, like basically part of the solar maverick, but then where Ben would focus on the technical aspects. And I think there's a huge need for that in the market. And, and definitely, Ben, I think you would be yeah. great. So. Yeah, I, the solar nerds like myself <laughs> will, will really enjoy that. <laughs> Although you really do have some good technical, you have had some recently some really great technical podcasts on here which I've really enjoyed too. So we can think about that for later. Yeah, definitely. I think this is like the first foray that I was telling Ben. First, let's get you on the show and then we'll work on the technical part of the podcast. And we try to interview a lot of different people within the industry so that you get a really good perspective of the different things that people are working on. And it's interesting, you talked about Puerto Rico. Can you talk about how was it to work on projects in Puerto Rico and how did the hurricanes impact the solar plants that you had there? How do you manage like crisis of that magnitude and the key takeaways you had from that experience? Obviously it economically devastated Puerto Rico, what happened? And can you talk a little bit about your experiences? Yeah, for sure. That's unique that many people don't have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In 2015, I joined a company, Synetics. I was the head engineering and construction for the Puerto Rico division. And over two years there, we built a 16 megawatt solar, five megawatt battery grid tide generator. And then we built the larger project Oriana, which was a 58 megawatt solar, 22 megawatt battery system with, with 15 minute batteries. And Oriana at the time was the largest solar plant in the Caribbean and it was the first plant that fully complied with the mean technical requirements, the grid code, frequency and voltage regulation and ramp, which now I don't even believe the grid codes in other countries are even there to that point yet. Uh, of course, it wasn't enough to save Puerto Rico's grid from the hurricanes, but it was very, very impressive design of our system and their requirements, to be honest. Oriana itself, this is before the hurricane, had was one of these projects that pretty much had everything you could deal with on a solar project we had. We had hills, we had rock, we had sand, we had to go under a highway, we had salt mist, earthquake, seismic design, you know, all these different things, and hurricane wind speeds, of course. And so we actually built the project, finished at the end of 2016, and as you alluded to, Puerto Rico was hit by the two Category 5 hurricanes, second one being Hurricane Maria. And we received Category 4 and Category 5 wind speeds there. And our plants were generally, really happy to say, almost unscathed. I mean, we lost less than 4% of our panels, virtually none of the racks, one transformer out of 58 transformers or something like that. And honestly, we had a little bit of humidity issues in the lithium-ion batteries. But in general, within a few months, we were able to be tying online. We were dealing with a crisis, and a lot of people probably saw this on TV. We went into crisis management mode at Synetics. We had a $160 million asset sitting there, and the grid was totally out. But what we needed to do was get it ready to be online as soon as it could in case the grid can come back on 
And actually, Synetics went a step further when they had, at an executive level, they decided to try to convert this anti-islanding battery into a microgrid compliant solar panel battery system. So we actually, within a month of the hurricane, we had totally retooled the system to be a voltage source, converting one of the batteries into a voltage source, and the rest of the batteries as a sink for production spikes and for load spikes and valleys. And so we actually brought PREPA out, PREPA's the utility down there. They tested the system with amazement, and we had gone through all the full battery of tests, and we were able to provide power to, for example, a local neighborhood or a hospital, but we were never given permission due to legal issues from PREPA side. And so really, really amazing experience that Synetics had to retool these systems into microgrids. And now what we're seeing is down in Puerto Rico, people, everybody wants to do solar on their roof and everybody wants batteries. And the new type of system that they're using down there has a switch, a manual switch, that will allow you to switch on your system to act as an island during a crisis, or you can switch it to be anti-islanding, which is typical formation for these systems. And I think people all around the world are watching some of the things that both our company did and other companies did down there to deal with, with the crisis. Sure, that's amazing, that's interesting to hear how you basically adapted that system. Yeah. Functionality, consider what happened to support the grid. I have some great lessons learned, and maybe we can do this on the first spinoff episode, I don't know, about technical and construction-related, operations-related, crisis management planning for solar plants. Very specific things, and so, I don't know, if we have some time later in this, we can hit them, or we can talk about it on the next one. But really, really interesting experience with working a solar plant through a major shutdown like that from the insurance level, from the safety level, security, and recommissioning. So there's a lot of lessons learned. I think it would be valuable for the community to hear about that. And obviously, you brought a lot of value and learned a lot from that situation that you incorporate now. Interesting. We're going to change topics. You talked about energy storage. I know I mentioned in a previous podcast that Massachusetts, which you mentioned, has a solar plus storage incentive. And you mentioned you have experience with storage in Puerto Rico. Having your own company, are you looking when you're developing projects at storage at this point, or is it still early in the process? Yes. First of all, our company, like I mentioned in the top of the interview, we are trying to focus on certain areas we feel are sort of underserved niches in the market. And one is solar plus storage and storage only. Okay. I can't say that a storage only is totally underserved. Everybody, there's a lot of out of the box solutions, but what we are saying we can do is a full comprehensive single point where we single point of contact where we can analyze the system, including a series of potential applications, revenue stream applications for the storage, develop the system, including permitting and interconnection, engineer, procure, and construct, and then even on the back end, finance these systems. So 
we actually are focusing in some markets we think are very strong for storage. One being California. Okay. California has very good demand peak shaving opportunities. So there are some times of year where there's $20 and $30 per KW demand charges. So great opportunity for storage only there. We are also happen to be working in pure solar plus storage microgrid system development in the Caribbean. Several different Caribbean islands. We are talking about taking the entire island off generation. We have some really, really great solutions to do that. And it's not exactly easy. But the third thing I'd say that to talk about the full spectrum is on one of our consulting relationships, we're working on one of the largest storage-only utility applications that's mostly serving sort of a capacity reduction, but with some side arbitrage potential revenue streams. And so we are sort of the technical resource on that for our client. This is all really interesting. I appreciate talking about the different types of projects, both standalone storage and solar plus storage. And obviously everyone knows that that this is going to be a huge trend. And as it gets especially more economical, states passing incentives. So it's interesting to hear your perspective. Utilities and regulators are not even there yet. This is like the same place that solar was in like 07, 06, 07, 08, where it was like, we don't even know how to do an interconnection on this. We don't even know how to meter this, or, or we don't even know how to evaluate with transmission planning these systems. So I believe that over the next, say, three or four years, regulators, policymakers, utilities, local jurisdictions are going to be catching up and creating structures where us developers and builders out there will be able to connect the real technology with the clients who need them. Yeah, definitely, which is a huge, right? The technology and understanding the software yeah. and the technology piece and the right applications. It's very challenging and it sounds like you're in the forefront of it, which is exciting. I'm wondering, have you evaluated something like storage for that Brooklyn project that you're working on? I think they might have good opportunities there, although you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned this because actually Sean from Constellation, who we're both friends with, and we're trying to get Sean on the podcast because I think he would provide very unique insight because he looks at projects. And Con Edison is actually where we're developing a portfolio with the New York Housing Authority for Solar on 3,800 buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Storage is a huge, and they have great incentives in certain parts of both Manhattan and Brooklyn. He sent me actually a thing where they were certain parts of the city, it's actually more advantageous due to the grid, the transmission and distribution network to have some sort of energy storage there. But we haven't actually for this project, because just because this is the first time of doing solar. So we're trying to focus on first the solar piece and then eventually hopefully be a part of the process and that storage. But you're right, there's a huge opportunity specifically in New York City and Con Edison service territory. By the way, there was only a blackout a week and a half ago. Oh, it, really? Oh, you didn't hear in Manhattan and Midtown West on Saturday night from 8 p.m. You're right. I saw some videos of that on something on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, J Lo's concert at Madison Square Garden got canceled and things like that. So, you know, obviously, Con Edison, I think, especially too, after that incident as well, obviously, there has to be some upgrades to the transmission and distribution network. Obviously, I don't have all the information, but then also energy storage as well is a great way as far as capacity to bring it up. So, it's interesting because that actually applies 
to something that's kind of happened already and it's in that service territory. And I should probably go into more detail and, and research it more. I think there's a huge opportunity in New York City for energy storage. Yeah, I mean, it's all about, all this stuff comes back to congestion, which comes back to grid stabilization. And that's manifested in time of use energy prices, as well as a particular times demand high demand. And that's why our bills, especially here on the East Coast, are shifting to being more demand heavy than energy heavy, because they're realizing that they need to incentivize people to get their demand down in the times where it's quite congested. That's true. That's a great point. And the other thing too, obviously, energy storage, it's a lot easier to get power back onto the grid from the storage devices than other sorts like peaker sort of plants, natural gas, and some of the other things. Storage is huge for people. We're kind of getting into very detailed things that people might not totally understand. But two, battery storage, you could put power back onto the grid a lot quicker than other forms of energy. So that's why it's a really helpful alternative. It's interesting, as I mentioned before, and we're kind of transitioning to a different topic, is obviously you said you came from a family of entrepreneurs. You've had a lot of unique experience and diverse experience in solar. We mentioned some of the companies that you've worked with. What suggestions do you have for people who are looking to be an entrepreneur? It would be great to get your unique perspective. You're also still, it's a relatively new business. I know it probably feels like a year and eight months feels like forever when you're an entrepreneur, but it'd be yeah. great to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I am not the preeminent expert. We're talking to the solar maverick himself, <laughs> <laughs> but I can definitely give a couple tidbits here that hopefully are interesting to you and listeners. And honestly, just before I jump into that, listening to this podcast, it's unbelievable the way that you blend real information about the solar market that's useful and real useful information for entrepreneurs and starting your own business and sort of being an executive in a business that I've actually been able to take back and use. If you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, think about it. Think about the pros. Think about the cons. Think about the risks. Think about the upsides. Analyze it a little bit, but don't overanalyze it. Remember that the world that we live in right now basically reiterates to you over and over and over why you want to work for a stable company, why you want to have a stable paycheck, why nine out of 10 companies will fail. And it's quite complicated. That's the world that you live in. And the contrary angle to that is you also need to look at what is the worst that can happen if you do jump into entrepreneurship. So really the worst that can happen is you lose a little bit of money, which you probably had saved up in the first place. And in worst comes to worst, you apply for jobs in six to 12 months. So don't overthink it and don't try to beat yourself up to make the most comprehensive business plan. It was a hard jump for me to get into. I may have taken a few years too long to do it, but I'm really happy that I did do it. And I'm giving myself a chance to have this autonomy that I like and to truly sort of align my personal goals and craft a company and craft a direction for my employees to all sort of align up in the most closest thing to an idealistic way to what I'm shooting for. Maybe you have some experience with that. I really wake up every single day totally excited to sort of jump into, into the projects that I work on. 
And so that sort of alignment is something that you don't get exactly when you are working for your employer. That's one of the suggestions for you. Those are all really great suggestions, by the way. I think all of them are great ideas and great points. What's the worst that could possibly happen? If it doesn't happen, you always have that regret if you never tried, if you really wanted to try your own business. And I think too, as you mentioned, like you could always get another job and there's no real thing as like job security as we know in the solar industry. Companies that we thought were going to be here for a while are not around anymore. And then it's interesting too to get your perspective as well because even from this podcast and my interactions with you, you could hear your passion about what you're doing and you're doing what you love to do and it doesn't feel like work. And obviously when you're doing it for yourself versus another company, that as well gives you a lot of positive energy as well. Yeah, I have found myself having to wear a lot of hats. And when you are in the working world, you don't wear all those hats. You know, I have this title and these are the two or three things that I do. Suggestion for listeners, folks that are interested in starting their own business, spend some time each day or at least each week identifying all the things that are on the table, create a to-do list, create a three-month plan, even those things that are not the tasks that you would love to gravitate towards, spend some time seeing the bigger picture, which is I want success for this company, and then roll back and say, okay, I'm going to knock these things out, or I'm going to find somebody to address this task rather than procrastinating you know, or sort of being complacent. For some people, this is no big deal, but I think continuing to sort of have a mindfulness about what you're doing and how this fits into your bigger picture will enable you to get over these little humps on some of these little activities, whether it's accounting or whether it's the sales call or writing this proposal or doing an AutoCAD design, which you haven't done in five years or something, that mindfulness will help you sort of see the bigger picture and allow you to get over these little tasks. Yeah, these are all great suggestions. Mindfulness with intention is huge. This has actually been the part of the podcast where you get to ask me two questions. I've been asking you a lot of questions and it's been a great discourse. Thank you for that. I know. Honestly, I don't like normally being the center of attention, but this is a very interesting format and I'm glad I can turn it back on to you a little bit. Sure. <laughs> Let me see here. I, was, I see what I wrote down for you. Try to hit you with a hard one. What I think a lot of people are seeing right now, especially in the utility scale space, are prices for PPA prices going lower and lower. Every single aspect of the supply chain is getting squeezed. Every panel, manufacturer, delivery company, the financiers, the debt, the transaction costs, the EPCs, and I believe we're starting to see the same thing, especially with the emergence of these companies that are facilitating RFPs for building owners. So they can get the lowest PPA price, for example. We are going to continue to see as this market sort of fills up lower and lower prices. So how far do you think this can go? Either comment on it sort of returns wise or maybe by a potentially change in policy or perspective. Where does this stop? That's a great question. And definitely everyone's talking about this within the industry. I mean, I think as an industry, we're just getting more efficient. 
as you mentioned with EPC, with structuring financing, what we're basically seeing now is returns like project lever after tax unlevered around six to seven percent. It used to be double digit returns. We're seeing a lot of investors getting into the markets, which is lowering the return thresholds, pension funds, insurance companies, international investors have a low cost of capital. So we're seeing investors getting involved earlier in the cycle. Obviously, people are trying to put as many panels as possible, high efficiency panels to take advantage of production. So I don't know how much lower we could really get, but I feel like the industry keeps innovating. And I really feel like you could disagree with me, Ben, on this is like financing used to be very complicated because you would have tax equity, you have the 30% investment tax credit, you have accelerated depreciation, you have state level incentives. So you have to structure it a certain way through a partnership flip sale, lease back, inverted lease. But now, like, to me, financing is a commodity. Like, everyone kind of knows what to do. Yeah, you're not inventing this. You're not the pioneer of any one of these structures. So Yeah, I know people still complain that they feel like tax equity still gets a high return on their money. Obviously, there's limited tax equity out there. But then what we're seeing, too, is, like, the pricing getting lower, but also contracted terms getting lower. We're also seeing investors getting comfortable with merchant risk. We're also seeing assumptions on the useful life of these projects getting longer and longer. Sometimes I feel like unrealistic past 20 to 30 years to win bids. And so it's an interesting question. I don't feel like it could get that much better, but you never know. Like I feel like the industry keeps innovating, let's say bifacial panels with storage and incorporating that into the equation. So it really is a difficult question to answer. I feel like we're near the bottom. And I feel like the real value is when developers who have that customer relationship and able to get the customer to move forward. And obviously the offtake agreement are the two most things that were the most value in the industry is created at this point. Solar installations are not very complicated. So yeah, that's just my multiple thoughts about that. And I suppose there's a floor, you mentioned six to 7%. I guess we're talking levered rate of returns over the life of a deal, or maybe on the contracted life of a deal. Contracted, the unlevered actually. Levered. Unlevered contracted, so. Levered contracted. So. Oh, levered, okay. So levered contracted six to 7%. So I guess the lowest you can kind of go is what your company's cost of capital is. And I suppose if you were to go and get investment from potentially other countries, or if there was a relaxing on the indicator interest rates or something, and it lowered, but I think what will probably end up happening is that we won't be able to go much lower as far as the levered rate of return. And it will have to be some of those things that you said which is creativity across the different aspects of the sort of supply chain and financing supply chain. So really, really interesting perspective. Thanks. Oh, anytime. Another question, if we want to sort of be a little pie in the sky. And while I was at Synetics, we used to talk about this a lot. And the question was sort of, do we think these markets, especially in the U.S., are going to continue to grow on the DG with DG focus, 
or utility scale focus. Like, so our project's going to be getting sort of bigger and bigger, or is the ratio of sort of utility to DG going to be expanding? Or are they going to say, hey, well, we want decentralized and we want the people to benefit be those companies that, that actually are the load users. How do you see the market? Do you see it moving in one of those directions? Do you think one makes more sense for states that are looking and adopting this? Or do you think we'll just sort of continue at a similar trajectory where it's a bit of a mix of both? For me, I always think, look, if people can provide power at three cents and do that all day, it's utility. But at the same time, there's the case for DG. So, Yeah, I think it's both. Obviously, Georgia Power has been aggressive with their solicitations. You know, the bids have been between three and a half to five cents per kilowatt hour, which is extremely low for solar. So I think we're going to continue to see prices go down, especially, I don't know, it's challenging because it also is dependent on incentives as well. But yeah, I think utility scale will still be there as long as solar is competitive with other energy sources. I think DG, there's a huge opportunity. I think we're seeing more and more DG happening, especially that's distributed generation, especially like on rooftops and companies that have either a new roof or they need some sort of roof work done. And then they kind of roll in the solar. And obviously states that have high electricity prices and strong state level incentives. Also, obviously, the more sun you get as well, those are obviously the more beneficial where you can maybe even tie in within the power purchase agreement, some sort of roof improvement, same price or discounter to the current cost of electricity. I think it's you're going to see both. And it's exciting. I mean, I just think it's going to continue to grow. Being in the space and you were at you were at Solar City for a little while. You were at someone else before that. You've been in the space quite a long time. And I suppose it has matured in a way that we all sort of thought it would. Prices came down, more people came into the space over the last 10 years. What we are trying to do, and I think that there is this sort of reemergence of a sort of second tier of customers that didn't catch the first wave, that is a bit of a, a sort of second solar boom. These companies that weren't the low-hanging fruit in 2012 because they weren't the grade A credit, they were not a two megawatt roof or something like that, they were maybe not in the right state at the right time or the right place at the right time. And I think this reemergence is allowing, this same thing may apply even to the smaller utilities who didn't catch the initial wave and they didn't get pushed by the regulators to have an RPS in their states. We're seeing a second wave right now, which a lot of the folks who are still in the space are capitalizing on. Roundtrip Energy is able to serve that market with some really competitive financing, and we're partnered up with a few EPCs to do that. I do believe that DG will definitely be here to stay, but so will utility prices so long as they're under four cents. Yeah, because obviously natural gas being plentiful and cheap, obviously keeping electricity prices low because natural gas prices are dictating what electricity price market is. So that's a great point as well, that as long as solar is at that price point, then it becomes competitive for utility, which I think is a great point that you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. This podcast is really a great blend. And it's something that surprised me as I started to go through all the episodes. Great blend of solar and entrepreneurship. 
And I think you were saying that you're thinking about potentially writing a book on this. Something that I really like is the way that you bounce back and forth between really informative aspects about the market itself, sort of training folks up on areas that they might not know, as well as giving entrepreneurs and other folks that are sort of business people real life perspective. And I don't believe anyone else in the industry is in podcasts is doing this. Keep up the good work. Yeah, definitely, Ben. I appreciate it. Solar obviously is an exciting growth sector that I'm extremely passionate about. Renewable energy, sustainability, and then entrepreneurship as well. And any way that we potentially add value, it's just amazing for me to hear like feedback from people that some of the advice that we said or books that we recommended, or I talked about the Headspace app on a previous podcast. I know you met, you were talking to me about your experiences with Headspace before we started taping the podcast. So it's interesting just to make an impact. And I think it leads to others to kind of follow their destiny and passion. So yeah, during this interview, I'm waiting for that music, that <laughs> pump up music to descend in, in the room. You know, there's nothing that gets me excited like that. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how much feedback we get about the hip hop intro. Oh, yeah. We have, and that happens in the editing process, unfortunately. So you'll hear it live when the podcast gets released. Okay, yes. For some future shows, I want to have, like, my right headphone to kind of get me pumped up like all the listeners are. Yeah, and I'm a big hip-hop fan, so, you know, that's why we have that as the intro. This has been an amazing interview, Ben. I appreciate your time today, and I appreciate you being also a loyal listener of the podcast and being supportive with feedback as well, even outside of an actual interview. If people want to learn more about Round Trip Energy and to reach out to you, what's the best way that they could do that? Take a look at roundtripenergy.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Round Trip Energy, and you can contact us at info at roundtripenergy.com. So we have Twitter and Facebook handles, but admittedly, we are not that active on it. But my colleague, Brandon Freeberg and I are working up to that place. But I really try to let him keep control of all the marketing. Definitely feel free to contact us. We have been in this industry for quite a long time. We have some really exciting optimization and different strategies on your projects. Thank you, Benoli. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and uh, looking forward to continuing our conversations. Yeah, definitely. This is the start to many. I could see the technical podcast happening very soon. So thank you again, Ben. This has been an amazing interview. Great perspective. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, Ben. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. Thank you.